The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I have a super positive message for you guys tonight. <clears throat> Are you ready for a super positive message tonight? Nothing is less positive than hiding the negative. Did you know that? It's the truth. It sounds weird. But let me say that again. I don't think anything is more benef- or less beneficial to us than hiding the negative. This is what I mean. I've talked to a guy or, or even recently, and there, there are people who do what I do for a living, pastors, who believe that their call as a pastor is to teach hope absolutely part of what you would say a preacher of the Bible's job is to do, correct? We'd agree with that, right? That we're deliverers of hope. However, to teach hope for a lot of people means we don't teach anything that's negative. We don't talk about anything that's depressing. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about um, darkness. We don't talk about anything that would be like, oh, that's a bummer to kind of hear. We just teach good news. But the reality is this, it's the absolute truth. For good news to be good news, it has to invade bad spaces. Otherwise, it's just news. Um, it, it doesn't mean it. If you, if you tell someone that uh, is completely and totally healthy, you, you go to Africa, go to someone who's completely and totally healthy, and you hand them an antibiotic. You know, this antibiotic, if you take it right now, is going to keep you from dying. And they're like, awesome. Am I dying? No, you're fine. Oh, so I don't need to. Take it. No, but it'll keep you from dying, but you're not dying, so it's no big deal. No big deal, right? But if you tell the guy, you're dying. You're going to be dead soon. You have an infection that is ravaging you right now. You have, you are dying, but I have something right here that's going to save your life. You'll just take this. Now, now do you see there's a difference there? Suddenly they're like, there's a value to this that wasn't there before. I used the example one time a long time ago, one of my favorite shows. It's about to kick back up again, Deadliest Catch. Any fans in the room here? There's a few, Deadliest Catch. I know there's a lot of bleeping out of things on the show, but um, I love that show. It's fun to watch, and those people appreciate the Coast Guard. If you've watched that show at all, those guys have incredible respect for the people in the Coast Guard. It comes out every single year. They end up talking about it. You know who doesn't think about the Coast Guard a whole lot? Us. We don't, because today our lives do not depend on the Coast Guard at all. The odds of us needing the Coast Guard are 0%. We don't need them. But when you're in a position where you understand the value to them and the danger that you're in, it changes the understanding and the meaning. So what we're going to be talking about today is a little bit of a negative message, but we have to understand the negative message or we will never understand the importance and the value of the positive message that this is really just creating a foundation for. Does that make sense? So this is not a happy-go-lucky message, and yet it's a very very good news thing for us to hear. Amen? And we'll try to have some fun with it. Um, I'll try not to be too much of a negative person. That's not really my personality. But um, we're starting the book of Ecclesiastes. Pastor Sam did a great job last week of sort of giving an introduction to that. He talked about the author, Solomon, and kind of Solomon's life. He talked about how to approach this particular book, kind of how to read it. And now what we're going to do this week is we're going to start, even though he, he read through verses 1 through 11 and kind of showed you guys some examples of how that's to be read, we're going to start from verse 1 of chapter 1, and we're going to do all of chapter 1 together and begin sort of the exposition of that, the verse by verse, like let's look at what's specifically and precisely being said in here. Um, Herman Melville, you guys know Herman Melville, the, didn't he write Moby Dick, is that correct? Herman Melville, that's the same guy. Um, he actually said that this was one of the most trustworthy books that you could ever, re- ever read because the author had been through hard things. And you can trust a man who's writing after he's been through hard things. So this is a book you can trust. This, is, this guy's been through some stuff. He's not just writing in a vacuum about things he doesn't understand or know. He, uh, he's been through things, and so there's some benefit to this. And as a result, this particular book is categorized, as Sam shared with you guys last week, as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is just a few books of the Bible that are clumped into the idea, uh, though, though there's wisdom throughout the scriptures, correct? Um, but there are five books of the Bible that are categorized as wisdom literature. That's Proverbs, which you could describe as a field guide to success. 
success. And I don't just mean monetary success or business success, but just life. Wisdom for how to live a successful, not by the world's definitions necessarily, but a well-lived life. You get the book of Proverbs. It deals with money, relationships, character, all sorts of things in there. Uh, Next, you have the book of Psalms. Which Psalms is a book that in really strange, poetic, but beautiful ways, it connects the heart and mind, even in situations where it doesn't look like the heart and mind's connected at all. And if you've walked with the Lord for very long at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like those times when your head tells you this is what's going on and your heart tells you, I have no idea what's going on. You've been through those kind of situations before? That's why in in Psalms you'll see passages where David one minute is like, my heart desires you, Lord. And and just five verses earlier, he was going, I have no idea what you're doing, Lord. Have you left me and abandoned me? Like even within the same thing. And and if we're being really honest, we've been there, right? Lord, I trust you. It's like that that story in the the New Testament that Jesus, where he's meeting with the man and he says, man, I can do all things to those who believe. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. It, It didn't take long walking with the Lord to understand that. Um, and so, so it's a beautiful but real book that tends to connect with us in, on an emotional level because we can relate to some of the things that David and others are going through there. Then there's Song of Songs, which, uh, I don't know, one day we'll teach about that, no time soon. Um, it's, uh, it's about love, relationships, and it's a lot about sex, and there's some fun stuff to teach one day maybe, but not tonight. Then there's the last two, which are Job and Ecclesiastes. And Job and Ecclesiastes are going to attack sort of the same problem, but from two completely different angles. Now, now you guys, I I think most of you probably know the story of Job, but I don't want to assume. In in the book of Job, Satan comes before God, and he says, "Uh, God, you know, I've been looking at your creation. I've been looking at all the stuff you made, and especially these people, those human things that you created. And I have to say, they're a mess. They're a mess. Are you serious? Like, you did that on purpose? They're a mess. And God's like, "Eh, but have you seen Job? Job's a righteous man. Have you seen Job? And he's like, yeah, that doesn't count. Because look, he's been totally untouched. You've got this hedge of protection around him. Job alone should crush prosperity gospel, right? Because prosperity gospel says if you do the right thing, things are going to go well. And the whole argument here is, well, God, Job's faith's never even been tested because he's never been through anything. Everything's been perfect. You've protected him from everything. He hasn't had to wrestle with nothing. He's been through everything. Of course, Job, that doesn't count. And so God says, okay, then I'll tell you what. Here's what you can do. And he removes this hedge of protection from from Job. It's a really cool, if you really think about kind of the cosmic level thing that's going on in the book of Job. And, and there's even this beautiful picture in there. Like we tend to think like it's Satan versus God, but it's really not like that. It's puny little Satan whining about Job and God's like, fine, I'll let you do this then. But it is by no means a battle of equals in the book of Job. It's a really cool thing that you get to see there. But so God removes this hedge of protection and Job is like just chilling in the garden, having a great day, beautiful sunny day, maybe just like this, walking in his garden when a servant comes up and says, hey, we got attacked out of the east. They came in and they wiped out everyone, all of your servants, all of your people, everyone's wiped out. They killed everybody except me. And before that guy can even finish his sentence, another dude from another direction comes in and says, Job, you're not gonna believe what happened. Someone came in, the Chaldeans, they came in and they attacked, they take all your people captive and they killed everyone else and they left They left no one alive except for me. And as he's finishing that sentence, another guy comes in with the exact same story from a different direction. They came in, they attacked. And before he can even finish that story, another servant comes and says, all your children were in a house having dinner. And the wind came and it collapsed the building and the roof came down and they're all dead. He gets all that news in like 30 seconds. So his whole world comes crashing down. And what's his response? It's that famous passage. We get the song from it, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, which makes his wife mad. And her response is what? Curse God and die, Job. Curse God and die. And there's this, all this back and forth where he's looking into the meaning of things and he's questioning and then he holds his faith and friends are questioning and everyone's trying to figure out all the cause of all this suffering. What's going on? What's the point of it? But the end result is it comes in on the backside is look, 
Our hope's not in these things on earth. Our hope is in God. And no matter what's going on around here, God is faithful and powerful and in control. And even when we don't understand why we're suffering, we can trust God. Our, our hope is not in earth. Our hope is in something beyond, well, as the, Saul, the writer of Ecclesiastes might say, beyond the sun. So that's the angle that that comes. Now, most people don't handle suffering the way Job did, correct? In fact, let's just say no people handle suffering perfectly the way Job did for the most part. Uh, our, our things, we waver at times. We may, we may resolve to some of that, but most people, and especially outside of the church, most people don't handle suffering that way. In fact, when we're going through a difficult thing, we're going through a hard time, we tend to take a different approach. What we tend to do is we look at our situation and we tend to think, if only. I had a roommate in college. He had a beat-up Volkswagen Rabbit. You remember the Rabbit? You guys remember the Rabbit? Volkswagen Rabbit. He had a license tag on his Volkswagen Rabbit. It said, if only. That was his license tag. And I was always like, what does that mean? He's like, if only my car would work. If only I had a new car. If, it was kind of like his little joke with some of his buddies from before I had met him. If only. But that's actually the way most people tend to approach difficulty. If only. If only, and we look at something else that's outside of that issue. If only I had a relationship like that person, I wouldn't be so miserable in my marriage over here like this. Or if only I had a job like that person, instead of slaving away for nothing like I am in my position, life would make sense and be easier and I would be happy. I would have joy. If only I had the more money. If only I had a different job. If only I had, and we look at these circumstantial things and we say, these are the things here that I just needed in order to give me the kind of happiness and joy I'm looking for. But the problem with that is the book of Ecclesiastes, which then comes in and says, nope, 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 nope. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, we start off with the words of Solomon in verse one, where he says, the words of the preacher, which can actually be translated teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So he's stating right off the bat, I'm gonna teach you guys something. And this goes beyond just personal life experience because it'd be easy for us to look at Solomon and go, yeah, but he was rich. And yeah, but he did have a lot of servants. And yeah, he did have a lot of relationships. I mean, let's just be honest. If he's having trouble with one wife, he probably just went to the next one the next night, right? So not exactly someone we should take some of that kind of advice from. Why is he the guy? But he also had something else more than any other man that had ever lived. Because remember, God offered him something and he chose what? Wisdom. He's also the king of the kingdom in the land at that time. And so the way he's bringing this about is not to just say, this is just my life experience, but look, this is what I have learned. He is an educated, learned man with a lot of resources, and he's bringing to you sort of the culmination. I'm gonna teach you something that I've learned. Most powerful man who's had access to everything, and he's got more wisdom and is smarter than we are no matter how long ago he lived, okay? So he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now we know he's not talking about the place where his wife does her makeup, correct? It's not that kind of vanity. The word vanity there literally means meaningless. And it's just a little more poetic because it would be odd to say, meaningless of meaninglessnesses, says the preacher. Meaninglessness of meaninglessnesses, all is meaningless. It just wouldn't work. So the word vanity is used, which means emptiness, nothing, meaningless. There's nothing there. Maybe the analogy you've heard before, if you've ever studied this book, a pretty famous one is that of a soap bubble. You can see it, it looks like something's there, but the moment you try to touch it, it's gone. Cotton candy, kind of the same thing, you know, fair season's coming, it's a sunny day. So meaninglessness, and this is a theme that he's gonna hammer over and over and over. That word gets used 38 times in only 12 chapters, 12 short chapters in this particular book, meaninglessness. And he's saying, how much is meaningless? What is he saying meaningless, anyone? Everything. All means all, that's all all means? He's saying Everything is meaningless. Well, not my, my relationship with my children, not my uh, this, not my, no. Everything is meaningless, is what he says. It's a happy message, like I told you. Everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But why does he think everything is meaningless? Look at verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What's he saying? 
Everything's meaningless. Why? Look, how hard are you guys are working? Think about all your, your career, the year after year after year you work, you study, you learn, you gain life experiences, you build, you do all this stuff, but in the end, what happens? You die, the next generation comes in, and things just keep going. The, the Ferris wheel keeps going around. People get on and people get off, but it just keeps going around. And in the end, nothing really changes. No matter what we do, it just keeps going on. And he continues in the next verse, verse 5, and says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. The picture he's painting here is of a guy on a treadmill. You can run as hard as you want on a treadmill. You can run the speed up as high as you want. In the end, you're still there. Like I've been in the gym and run on the treadmill before and had people come on there like marathon looking runners and they're running twice the pace that I'm doing. I mean, they're just killing it over here and I'm just, <laughs> and hey, look at that, same, same time, tied you, <laughs> right? You just run and run and run and run and run, but in the end, you're not really getting anywhere it seems no matter how hard you run give me give me let me give you a few examples beyond just that let's put it this way how many people have mowed their yard already this year just out of curiosity how many people mowed their yard a week ago raise your hand and of those hands that are up how many people now need to mow their yard again isn't that weird like we just cut it right just keeps coming back. Just keeps getting, someone hasn't mowed their yard. <laughs> Somebody already is like, this is a positive message. Why mow? It's meaningless. We'll just leave it alone. No. It just keeps kind of coming back, doesn't it? How about this one? How many paid their bills last month? Raise their hand. Paid them. Good. They're paid. We don't have to worry about that anymore, right? Well, then they, they kind of come again. And, and how many of you just get the one paid and then it shows up in your mail and you're like, I, I just paid that. Don't I at least get like three weeks till the next one comes? Holly knows this, our bookkeeper here. I struggle with the accounting stuff. I'm so bad at getting receipts in on time. And here's what happens. I delay so long in getting it done because I hate it so much that when I give it away, I'm like, oh, it's done. But the problem is I'm so late that the next month is already on my thing the next week. And I'm like, but, 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 but. And so it's sort of always there, right? And there's so many more than these things. How about uh, worries of life? You ever in that place where you feel like, if I just get that one thing that's really bugging me right now done, then life's going to go smoothly, right? I used to feel that way all the time. When I was an engineer, there would always be that one project that's the closest to its deadline, and it's the one that's just killing me. I mean, incredible stress. And I would always, in my mind, I'm constantly telling myself, man, when that project's done, oh, I, this job will be tolerable again. But you know what the problem is? There's always one of those projects. And so it just moves out of the way and the next one comes in. And we even know that from life, don't we? Because when you're a kid, you're like, you just want free time and you just want all this play time and you're at school. So if you could just get out of school in the afternoon so you could go home and play with your friends, everything would be fine. But that's never enough time, especially in the winter when the time changes and gets dark so early. So you're always wrestling through that. You just need summer. But then the summers never really work. And so you're working your way through the years. You go, no, what I really need is just to graduate and get out of the house. Get away from mom and dad. Then I'll be happy. So you go off to college. And now what's the worry in college? Well, I said I was going to major in this. And it turns out I hate this. So I got to figure out something else that I'm going to do. So now I'm going to have to change majors. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? There's all this pressure. I don't know how I'm going to survive all this kind of stuff. And who, who makes you to choose when you're 18? That's stupid. But this is what I'll do. So I'll pick this for the rest. And if I could just graduate, then all the stress would be gone. But now I need a wife or a husband. That's what I need as a spouse. Because I got my degree, but I'm still alone and I'm in an apartment and that's lame and I'm tired of eating ramen noodles all the time. So if I could just find someone that I could live life with and find the right person too that we get along with and wants to watch Carolina basketball and doesn't mind when I go fishing, then it would be good. And so I just have to find someone that matches up with me and I've got them now. And now, oh, we just want kids. If we could just have kids and that happens, so you raise your kids in the house and then what's the next worry? If I could just get rid of the kids and get the kids out of the house, then everything would be fine. Then I would have some sort of peace and all that. It just goes on and on. I got to buy a house. Now I got to buy a bigger house. Well, now the kids are going to get a smaller house. And then in the end, you kind of circle back to where you were. I just wish I could just go outside. <laughs> I, I just wish I could just go outside and play. I wish I could just ignore all these different things that are going on. And don't you notice, like when you get old, don't you look back at the little kid from before and go, I had it made when I was five. 
don't you? Like I took my dog to the park yesterday and he, there was, when he first got there, there was no one else in the park, no one. And I, so I take him off the leash and he just ran at nothing and was having a ball. And I was like, that's heaven right there. That's joy. Doesn't need a reason to be happy. He's just happy. Doesn't matter. So don't, doesn't that happen? You ever look at your kids and you like, they get one little piece of candy that you're now grown up, you don't even like that kind of candy anymore. And it's just joy. Like we're just, we're never satisfied. There's always a new worry. There's always a new, the circle just keeps on going. And we constantly think the next thing is gonna actually make us feel better. It's circular silliness. And so he goes on, look, in verse eight, it's gonna get better. He says this, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear filled with hearing. All things are fully full of weariness and we can't even talk about it. So let me, let me give you an example of what, what he's talking about here. Tomorrow morning, my alarm clock will go off at about 5 a.m. It's men's Bible study tomorrow, so I'll get up about 5 a.m. and I'll come into work. I'll work through the day. Um, tomorrow we actually leave to man camp, so it's a little bit of a bad example, but I'll explain that even more a little bit later. But So I, I, on a normal day, I would go into work. It's going to be a you know, uh, Bible study. I'll get there about 6.30. Uh, Bible study starts. We'll go on about our day, do work, do different things, maybe get that accounting done that I need to still get done, all that stuff. And then lunch is going to come around, and I'll probably go to lunch, maybe with a coworker, maybe with some friends. Talk about some stuff, and then that hour or whatever is over, you go back to work, and you're going to work until about 5 o'clock. Then work's over. You're going to head home. Maybe you'll go to the gym. Probably not. Go home. Sit down with the family. You'll have dinner. After you eat your dinner, you're going to sit on the couch, maybe watch a little TV. At a certain point, when your eyes are dreary or you've already fallen asleep, you're going to get up and you're going to go to bed. And then what happens? Friday morning, you do it all over again. And it just goes round and round. Are you, are you feeling the happiness right now? Are you feeling the joy? Are you glad you came? It just goes round and round and round. And, he, and here's what he's saying. Our lives are much more like the movie Groundhog Day than we care to admit. You know what I'm talking about? Has anyone here not seen Groundhog Day? If you haven't, please leave now. Go to Netflix, watch Groundhog Day, and we'll talk again later. But, um, but this is the truth. More than we care to admit and the older we get, the more we start to realize that because that's when suddenly you go to bed one night and you're 25 and you wake up the next morning and you're 40. And you're like, what happened? And where did it go? It's this constant circular silliness. Now, some will go, ah, oh, Jeff, that might be your life. That's not my life. Well, he's gonna address that. Look at verse nine. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. So this is what happened. People will try to go, not mine, I'm doing something different, I've figured different things out, but what we find out is that those things that make us feel like we're actually nailing it and we're not part of this cycle that he's in are really distractions, temporary ones at best. So I'll give you an example, travel, travel. We love to travel, I think. I love to travel. Um, Aaron's going to love this because I've only told him this five times today. I, just out of the blue, found out that in two weeks, I'm going to get to check something off of my bucket list. I get to go to Alaska. I've never been to Alaska before. And out of the blue, this opportunity came. Are you guys aware of Ravi Zacharias? So out of the blue, I got invited as an Oregon representative to go to Anchorage, Alaska for personal, with a group of 25 people in a private residence personal apologetics training with Ravi Zacharias for two days. And I was just blown away by that. Like, my, he's like my mom's hero. She would push me into a fire to shake Ravi Zacharias's hand, okay? So, so I was super excited about that. And now, now I'm, I'm a fly fisherman. And so on one hand, I was a little bit bummed because I was like, oh, but it's April in Alaska. Nothing is thawed by then. And probably any rivers that are there, they're just gushing because of snow melt. I, at least I get to see it, and that's beautiful, and Ravi Zacharias and all that. I was so excited anyway. And so I'm talking with the guy, and he's like, oh, no, 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 Jeff. That's when the steelhead and the trout are at their biggest. And, and in fact, we're going to go. And uh, for two days, we're taking all you guys fly fishing, and uh, we're going to use a helicopter. So when I came to about two hours later, I called him back, and I was like, I'm in, and we're doing this. Just super excited to be able to do this. So here's what's going to happen. For the next two weeks, it's going to be the longest two weeks of my life. You know how this works, right? 
But the week that I'm in Alaska will be the fastest two weeks in the history of man. And when it's all over, what'll happen? Oh, I had an experience, but over time, parts of that memory will slowly fade and fade and fade, except for the photos that I will bore all of you with on Instagram and such. But will I be really any different? I mean, there, there might be some experience, there'll be some growth from the teaching thing, I would hope, but, but is the travel and all that newness and all that stuff, is that real? Like, is that what's going to change me? Or will I find that two weeks after being back, I'm still the same guy with the alarm clock going off at 5 a.m., right? That's a bummer, Jeff. Shut up. No, it's worse. How about this? Have you ever noticed how, like, you get into these mundane sort of routines and things just go by, but then sometimes you change one little bitty thing, and it makes everything feel new? Have you ever noticed this? I'll give you an example. You could look at your living room, and you, you don't even think about your living room. Like you just walk through it, you sit in it, but you don't give it any thought. But then when Christmas comes, you rearrange a little bit of a furniture to, to put what in? To put our Christmas tree in. And then have you ever noticed, suddenly you notice your living room for a while, every time you walk through there. You, suddenly things feel a little bit different. Have you ever noticed, they actually tell you that this is, so to speak, slowing down time. And people encourage you to do that because what happens is, is you get into such routines that you don't notice what's going on and one day you turn around and a month's gone by. And so there are those who actually, counselors and therapists even, who encourage you, hey, mix things up intentionally once in a while because it'll slow, so to speak, slow down time. But really all it's causing you to do is notice things that are going on there. But has anything really changed? I just moved some living room furniture around. I didn't split the atom, I didn't change time, and I didn't change anything within who I actually am. I moved a few things around, noticed it for a little while, but then even in and of itself, doesn't that eventually get old as well? I mean, the, the, it just continues, the cycle continues. How about this one? How about just new things? Have you ever noticed how buying something new makes everything, including you, feel different? Like feel, now I'm not talking about just like, um, I, I got a new phone and it does new tasks. I'm talking about the way it emotionally makes you feel. Be honest with yourself for just a second. Like you get a new car, there's, a, there's an exhilaration that comes in that. Like you're excited to actually drive to work the next day because you're driving your new car, right? Not to mention that you're still just driving to work. And, but, but there's something new about it that literally makes us feel different. It's like a materialistic way of vindicating ourselves. It, it, it's retail therapy, whatever it is, but it does affect us on a certain level. But in, in the end, here's what the writer here is saying. There's nothing new. Jeff, okay, fine. You got a new car, but you're still just driving to work and there's nothing new. It, the, the car you have, it was a horse a thousand years ago. Same thing. Nothing actually changed, Jeff. The new phone that you got, it's still just a phone. I, I just experienced this recently with Apple TV. So I got um, a couple of Apple TVs because we're always borrowing these to project things up during Bible studies and stuff as a church. And so I got a couple of them uh, to use that we, that we can kind of use as like traveling for the church for like men's retreats and all this kind of stuff. Um, only to find that there's a brand new Apple TV that's out that's different than the old Apple TV. And I tried to exchange it, can't find the receipt anymore, big shocker. So I'm just like, all right, fine. I'll just swap it out with the one that's in my office because this one has a hard drive that we don't need on these travel things. So I'll swap it out. So I plug in the new stuff and I'm setting it up and I'm putting in my account info and all this stuff. And it feels cool. The remote, no more batteries. You plug the remote in just like you do an iPhone and it charges. That's rad. The, rem the remote is a mouse pad. Like literally your finger, you use it like a mouse. There's all this stuff that was really cool. But here's what I learned. I did all the setup. I got everything plugged in. I got it all ready to go and I hit play and I'm still watching Netflix just like I did on the old Apple TV. It's the same thing. It's still the same thing. And I actually even felt in that moment, not knowing this Bible study was coming up, I swear, kind of like, it's kind of silly that I got so excited about that, but you still just use it to the exact same thing that the one before did. I got the 6S. Well, what about the 5S? What's the difference? I think it's faster, but I can't tell. But they tell me it's faster. It's the same. It, you, it's a calendar. They had, it, they had calendars in Jesus' day. There's nothing new under the sun. And in all of those things, what do we discover? The newness doesn't last real long, does it? It fades. Dogs die. People die. 
cars break down. Oh, you cleaned it a lot when it was brand new, but you don't need more, do you? This is what he's saying. There is nothing new. The technology may change, but the ultimate vanity of it never does. And hold on, it gets worse. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, by the way, Jeff, forget things. Let's just talk about you. Do you know how close, Jeff, you are to absolute extinction? Do you know, Jeff, how close you are to no one ever remembering Jeff Hensley ever even existed? And I'll prove it. Name your great, 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 great grandmother. Unless you're like a, the fifth, you know what I mean? Like Jeff Hensley, the fifth, or you're something like that. Unless you're that, odds are you can't. And if you do, you were on Ancestry.com earlier today, and that's cheating. This is true. Happy, right? Amen? Happy message. This is the reality. He's saying, understand this. You'll be gone too. Verse 12. And I, the preacher, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now remember. Here's what he's saying. Hey, by wisdom... I've basically put together this sort of life experiment. Now, some would say, yeah, but it's the Solomon. Who is he to say this? He is Solomon. So you guys know the story. God was so pleased with Solomon. He said, I'm going to grant you. It's almost like this weird biblical genie kind of thing that happens where he's like, I will grant you the desire of your heart. What do you want? And he doesn't choose money. He doesn't choose women. He doesn't choose any of that kind of stuff. He says, God, I want what? Wisdom. And God is so blessed by that response that he heaps abundant amounts of wisdom all over this guy. This guy, despite his faults, and there's lots of them, and despite his wealth and resources, all those kind of things, this man is absolutely qualified. And what he's saying here is I've used all of this supernaturally God-given wisdom, as well as all the five senses like all of us have, touch, taste, smell, hearing, vision, that's why all of those, he's like, I'm, I've taken all of these things and he says, I made it, I applied my heart. I'm gonna use these five senses to try to find out and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And really in the book, as you're moving forward, he's gonna basically break it up into um, a few different categories. Wealth, power, religion, friends, work, and pleasure. And pretty much everything you can think of in life can be categorized somewhere in there. And he's gonna say, listen, I took all this wisdom God gave me, the resources, money. I'm the king of the land. I have all the resources in the world. And I've devised this whole experiment, if you will, to look into all of these things that happen under the sun. To find out um, what all, what's the deal behind all these things that we tend to drift for or drift towards when we are looking for some sort of significance or some sort of meaning in life. We tend to drift to these things. And so I have investigated these things. If people say, hey, what's the meaning of life? I have sought to answer that question, is what he's saying. And so what does he find? Verse 13, I applied my heart to seek, to search out by wisdom, all done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In the end, he said, it's all meaningless. It's like trying to capture the wind. There's no point to even trying. It's all vanity, emptiness, meaningless. Now again, he's gonna qualify himself here a little bit if you would say, yeah, but why does he know? That was so long ago. He says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I have required great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. He's, he's saying, look, you can trust me on this. I'm not an idiot. Like, I've studied this. I've gone to the Lord with this. I've used God-given wisdom to search these things out. In verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. 
I perceived that this is all but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, I've come at it from all directions. So he's saying madness and folly. He, he said, I, I've, I've looked at everything. I've looked at life through the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Anybody remember that show? What was that guy's name? Robin something, right? Robin Leach it used to be a show, young people, um, before Netflix, we watched television on normal channels. There were three of them. And on one of those channels, Robin Leach used to do this show where he, well, you have MTV Cribs, so you have the same thing. It's the same thing. But he used to go into the rich people's house and show you how they live. And he's saying, hey, I've looked into that man. I've done that. I've wore the designer clothing. I've shopped in Beverly Hills. I've played polo. I've done all of that kind of stuff. I've drove the Bentleys and vacationed in uh, Bora Bora. I've done all that kind of stuff. I've lived the wealthy lifestyle. And there's nothing there. But I've slummed too. I moved to Bama. I went to NASCAR events. I wore hats that said tied on it for no good reason other than a car drives in circles and had tied on it. So why not? I listen to country music, and I don't mean like I don't mean like Luke Bryan country music. I mean like Hank Williams redneck country music. I listen to that kind of country music. I've chewed tobacco and got the ring in my back pocket. I've done the whole thing, and and that's not it either. And and guys, you, you know we laugh about it, but it's true. Because I can tell you from my own experience, just in pastoring this congregation, I have sat down with people who are going through hell on earth from a financial, let's say, standpoint who are ruined, who haven't eaten in a day and don't know where the next meal's coming from, who are financially destroyed. And then on the other end, I have sat down with, I can think of one family in particular that I sat down with years ago, one of the most wealthy and influential business owners in the entire vanity, and I sat down across from them and I saw incredible anxiety. And, and this is what happens. If you're in one of the camps, you think the other camp has the thing that you need. So the, the people with extreme wealth tend to go, man, it's nice to be able to travel. It's nice to be able to do all these things, but there's a lot of anxiety that comes with it. There's a lot of responsibility. Those people that I told you about a minute ago, when I sat down with them, his wife actually said to me, she said, everybody thinks because we have all this money that we have everything together and we have it easy, but they don't understand the level of bills that come with the kind of income that we have because they have to live this certain lifestyle. They, they're keeping up with the Joneses. There's all this other stuff that goes. And so she's killing herself and probably the wealthiest family I'll ever talk to in this valley. And it's no different. The anxiety level, the depression, the frustration, the emptiness, the I wish things in my life were different, no different than the poorest of the poorest person that I've seen here. I have seen people in Africa who have nothing, who are the most materialistic people I've ever seen in life because all they can think about is having something. And then I've seen others that were just as poor who seem happier than I'll ever be. It's not a situation. This is what we tend to do. We tend to look at these things and go, somewhere over the rainbow is the life that I actually want. If I could just get this to line in with this, if I just had that, it'll fix the things in life that I'm dealing with right now and everything will work out and everything will be happy. I just need that thing. And Solomon is saying, it's not true. It's absolutely not true. Wealthy people think, if I could just simplify my life a little bit more, I'd be happier. And poor people think, if I just had a little bit more money so that I don't have to worry about the things that people like that do, I'd just be a little bit happier. And Solomon's going, you don't understand. I've met them both, and they're both riddled with anxiety. Different kinds, different levels of responsibility, both miserable. This is what he's saying. Now, some are already going... This is, uh, can we have Sam back? Because um, Jeff, you've been gone for a while and this is a super lame message and it's so beautiful outside. I didn't come here today to, to hear all the bummer news and all that, but, but this is the point. And this is what Solomon is pressing on us to do right now. This is what he wants you to do. Until you can get to the place where you can honestly, like really look at and evaluate your life. If you can get to the point where you can sit back and go, I want to really look about what I hold is important, what I'm doing with my life, what my goals are and what's behind those things. Like what's the purpose of what I'm doing right here until you can get to that point and honestly look at it, don't fool yourself. You're stuck on a treadmill. You're running and running 
and running and you're getting nowhere. There's nothing new. You're accomplishing nothing. In the end, you're getting nowhere. No matter how big your bank account is, no matter how much travel, you're stuck on this treadmill. And most people don't get to that point where they want to stop and actually go, wait a minute. Let me think about this before I get on this thing. Let me, th- let me evaluate some, some things that are important to me and what's behind them and what does God's wisdom have to say. Most people don't do that until it's too late. It's called regret. And most people tend to, in the last part of their lives, say things like, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have. I wish I would have. And most people, and some of us in this room, and I'm not going to point any fingers, believe me, but some of us in this room are already in that point where we're going, I can't believe it's almost over already. You ever had those thoughts? Like, I'm 43. So if my life, if I'm at the midpoint right now, that means I got to live till 86. And most people don't do that. So suddenly when you start to dwell on that for a minute, you're like, so I'm over half? I'm over halfway? And we know how that works, right? When you fill up your gas tank, the needle doesn't move much at all in the first half of the tank. But after you pass that midway point, what happens there? Like it just, right? And, and most people don't stop to go, what am I really doing? What, what really is the purpose between all these things until? And what we discover when we stop, and this is what he's going to push on throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, is that you don't need a new thing. You don't need more wisdom. You don't need more wealth. You don't need more health. You don't need more money. You don't need more of any of those things. You need a savior that can get you off this meaningless treadmill to begin with and can actually bring meaning into your life because nothing else out there has it. This is his wisdom. He's saying, I searched everywhere. There's nothing to find. Trust me. What we need is someone that's going to come in. And so then Jesus would come onto the scene many years later. What does he say? If you want to gain your life, you what? Lose it. He says to the rich young ruler who thought he had everything dialed, he said, hey, turn your back on your goods and come follow me. And the guy just couldn't do it. He couldn't let go of the things that are going on. He walked away sorrowful. Why? Because he still hasn't found the answer that he's looking for. But he's too caught up in the treadmill to let go of what's going on. And the Bible teaches us that if you want to live your life, you have to lose it. You have to set the pride down. You have to set the money down. You have to set the self-will down. You have to set all of those things down. And if you go through life trying to judge everything based on our five senses, smell, touch, vision, hearing, taste, well, there, there's a sixth one. And I don't mean little boy that sees ghosts, great movie, but that's not the one we're talking about. There's a sixth one that the Bible introduces to us that's called what? Faith. That there's something else beyond just the stuff that we see. That our eyes don't always see everything clearly. That there's a a trust that has to come in and an ability to look beyond the sun. And that's going to look different. We're going to see later. It's going to be like even in the wealth. It's not that those things are bad, but what is it they point us to? Because this is what we believe. Our Christian worldview is informed in great part by the book of Ecclesiastes, actually. This is one of the most important books in all the scriptures in terms of forming what a Christian worldview looks like. And by that, what I mean is, how is it that we operate in the world around us because of what we believe? This book is hugely influential. And here's the reality of it. We as Christians believe that the world has been broken by sin. And I don't just mean people did bad. Sin means, I love this definition. A Christian philosopher years ago said this, sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're not, write that down. Sin is building your self-worth on anything other than God. And so another way of saying that is, is you can take even a good thing, no matter what it is, your wife, your relationship with your kids, whatever the case is, if you take a good thing, and you make it the ultimate thing, then you have guaranteed that thing will bury you. It will bury you. The wealthiest people in the world end up where? In a box underground. The house you live in right now that you've worked so hard to get, you want to think about something depressing? Think about this. One day, somebody other than you is going to live in it. That or it's going to be burned or torn down. It's one of those three. One day, someone other than, even, but I built, I designed this as my dream house. I know, and one day someone will enjoy it. It's just the truth. 
unless the Lord should come, that's what's going to happen. But when we take a good thing even, that's a good thing that you designed, got your dream home. Praise God that he blessed you with such a gift. But if that becomes your ultimate thing, you're gonna find that it is meaningless and empty and that pursuit of meaning in that will absolutely bury you. What about sex? We don't even need to talk about that, right? I mean, our culture still hasn't figured out how messed up it is over these things, but we're ruining people left and right or seeing people ruined. That's, we could say it that way. Over and over. If you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, it will bury you. And so we're constantly caught up in this tilt a world that just goes round and round and round and round and round. And what we need is not another seat on the tilt a world. What we need is not another option. What we need is a savior to help us understand the vanity of everything that's going on and bring meaning to our life. And that's where Jesus comes in and he says, I came that you might have what? Life. And life more what? abundantly. Like I, I came so that you might have the joy that Solomon is telling you he couldn't find in anything else. That's why I came. That Jesus didn't just come as fire insurance to keep us from going to hell. He came to bring us life, to save us, to bring us joy. Jesus wants you to enjoy the dream house that you have, but he doesn't want you putting your faith and your hope and your trust and everything in that because it is impossible for that to fulfill you. Jesus obviously wants you to enjoy your spouse, your husband, or your wife. It's commanded even in scripture that you do that, but he does not want you to make that thing your functional savior because he knows it just doesn't have the ability to hold up under that kind of pressure. It's not designed to be that. Everything, as good as they may be, all of those things exist to point us to something different. And he says, there's nothing new under the sun. Ah, yes, but there's something beyond the sun. There's something that we should look beyond. And no matter what it is, I mean, I love Carolina basketball. And as a basketball fan, this weekend is huge to me. Forget the fact that God has a sense of humor and is sending me to man camp on the weekend that Carolina is going to be in the final four. But I love watching them play. But here's what happens all the time. If I put all my hope in this and they lose, I'd be ruined and devastated and bummed. And if I put all my hope in this and they win the championship, you know what still happens? On Tuesday morning, it occurs to me, oh, but the season's over and these guys will go pro and so now we start over. Even the joy from that, it's fleeting. It doesn't last. It's over like that. It's not that, but if I look at that as like, man, Look at how God has blessed us with the ability, even just the technology, to watch a game like that. Look at how God has designed that something that seems as silly as a little game can bring us joy. What might that actually be pointing us to? Something that's lasting and not fleeting. And that's why the Bible tells us in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace in his blood on the cross. Another way of saying this is, I'm the thing that matters. If you're pursuing wealth, what you don't understand is what you're looking for is the freedom that you think that provides, but it's only found in me. You're looking for the provision you think that apply, will bring you, but it's only found in me. I, if you're looking in sex for elation and joy and physical intimacy and all those things, man, those things can be great in their proper usage, but outside of that, it doesn't. And it's not on you, it's on me. Those things are intended to point towards me. Your relationships with your wife, with your church, with your community, your house, your yard, your dog, all of those things exist to point us, not stopping at the sun, but that our worship might proceed beyond the sun. Beyond the, you might say, not to be cheesy, but you see it coming, don't you, Right? Beyond the S-U-N, looking to the S-O-N. This is the book of Ecclesiastes. And we have to know that. We can't just come in and tell people, all your hope, we need to help them understand the vanity of vanities. And, and I shouldn't even say it that way because even in saying it that, it paints an us against them kind of thing. Like we have it all figured out and everybody outside these walls don't. don't. And don't we all wrestle with this stuff all the time? time. We need to remind ourselves that, that even if you can pay that bill off, and God will care for you one way or the other, but that's not where your joy is going to come from. And there's another bill coming. Put your hope in Jesus, not in something that moth or dust corrupts. Put your hope in Jesus, not your house that you won't live in in another 40 years. Put your hope in Jesus, not that relationship, because anything we have can be, ta ask Job, 
can be taken in a moment. Car wreck, health tragedies. I, I literally got a text message from someone as I was walking over here, rushed to the hospital, mom's not doing well, we're in the ER any way you can come by. Those people did not know they'd be in the ER two hours ago. Had no idea, came out of nowhere. And sometimes we can think, man, if I just had, but life is, well, it's vanity. But everything exists to point us to the fullness and the purpose that we find in Jesus Christ and him alone. And all the joy in those things is pointing to a kingdom beyond this one that we are pleased to dwell in. Amen? So it's kind of a happy message, unless you're holding on too hard to the world. Then it becomes a pretty depressing message because you end up like the rich young ruler that goes, but I don't want to let that stuff go. My heart's on these things. I don't want to leave those things to chase these things. And you can do that. But Solomon's saying, trust me. I have made it a life experiment to say, where is hope found? Our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, so we say all that and we all shake our heads and we all know it and we all agree with it and we're terrible at it. Because God, the worries are gonna come again in the morning. The worries will probably come even tonight and it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of you. Lord, I I think of Peter walking on water and couldn't even enjoy that because he became afraid when he looked at the storm around and sank. So Father, I thank you that by your grace you brought us here tonight and opened this text tonight that we might once again realign ourselves, turn ourselves back towards you, understand what's really important, put our faith in you. God, may we work hard. May we enjoy the blessings you've given us, all of those things. But God, again, may we put our faith and our hope in you and live with an eternal perspective in mind, not clinging to things here so that we might not be devastated when they fail. But may we know, Lord, that your love and your blood never fails us. And to that end, Lord, we are grateful, Lord, because everything has let us down sooner or later, but you promised never to. And if there was anyone that deserved to walk away from us or anyone that deserved to be walked away from, it is us. And yet you're so good and so faithful and so loving. So thank you, God, that you are our hope, that you remind us of these things, that you've left us your word to remember these things. And I pray, God, that by your spirit, you'll give us the ability to walk in that. And Lord, when we fall, that I thank you that we, that we know that you're faithful. You'll send your Holy Spirit. Lord, you'll speak to us again to call us back because you love us and we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Amen. Hey guys, join me tomorrow morning, 6.30 at the Hub. Um, but I need my sleep. It's vanity. It's an hour. You'll be fine. 6.30 tomorrow morning.